This Late Hour presents The Genesis Problem. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be. After that, the hymn rather went off the rails, but those first two lines uh, have inspired me ever since. Inherent in this worldview is that somehow Noah and his family were able to build a wooden ship that would house. 14,000 individuals. There are 7,000 kinds, and then so it's about 14,008 people. And these people were unskilled. As far as anybody knows, they had never built a wooden ship before. It is a thing most wonderful that on this once barren rock, orbiting a rather mediocre star on the edge of a rather ordinary galaxy, on this rock. A remarkable process called evolution by natural selection has given rise to the magnificent diversity of complexity of life. I need to know if she really thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. That's an important. I want to know that. I really do, because she's going to have the nuclear codes. You know, I, I want to know if she thinks dinosaurs were here 4,000 years ago. The elegance, the beauty, and. The illusion of design, which we see all around us, brought together by this mechanical, automatic, unplanned, unconscious process—evolution by natural selection—that's not just true; it's beautiful. And it... I'm your host, Casey Knowlton. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. As mentioned in the prior episode, today I will be joined once again with Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries. And today we'll be responding to an interview that was done by Dr. Sean McDowell, uh, who interviewed Dr. William Lane Craig of Reasonable Faith Ministries. And in the interview, uh, Sean is asking... Dr. Craig about his new book, The Quest for the Historical Adam. I felt it was really important to respond to many of the comments that were made during this interview as I found them rather troubling. And as we've been seeing, it all comes back to Genesis with the assumptions and the different things that are being said here in this interview. So as we proceed, I will be playing different clips from the interview and allowing Dr. Ben's scripture to respond to uh, the different comments that uh, Dr. Craig is making as we do our best to faithfully represent his view and talk about the challenges and, and some of the incredible dangers uh, that, that arise from the theory that he is proposing. And I'm going to go ahead and break it into two sections, uh, as I've done before with other interviews on the program. 
And the second part of this interview will be posted next Friday. With, uh, so without much further ado, let's get right into the interview with Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries as he responds to Dr. Craig about his book, The Quest for the Historical Adam. Well, I want to welcome back Dr. Ben Scripture to this late hour. Dr. Ben, how have you been? It's uh, been, uh, I don't know how many months, Casey, but I've been fine, and it's great to talk with you again. It's good to have you back on the program. So I was admittedly kind of horrified by this video uh, that I came across. Uh, I heard about one of my favorite apologists from back in the day, Dr. William Lane Craig, uh, I can remember listening to his show, Reasonable Faith, uh, back when I worked at a woodshop uh, many years ago and, you know, found his program encouraging, interesting. Uh, and then this uh, news came up uh, online that he had written this book called The Quest for the Historical Atom. And you know, Craig is basically uh, admitting he's wrestled with these, particularly the first 11 chapters of Genesis and just their historicity and um, struggle to um, kind of align them with the sciences. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, it's one thing, you know, we've talked about this before on the program, you know, I, I'm perfectly happy to, you know, um, see uh, people who hold an old earth view as a secondary issue and understand there's a lot of um, disagreement, you know, friendly disagreement in the church on that. But when I started listening to what William Lane Craig was saying on this interview with Dr. Sean uh, McDowell, I just, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe some of the things that he was saying because uh, it goes far beyond just, you know, a difference of age of the universe. It goes into, a lot more diverse issues and issues that frankly, I, I wonder if, you know, maybe you'll disagree, but it seemed to me some of these could really well be heretical. And so I'm really interested to hear what you have to say about it. I, well, I uh, watched the interview uh, as well. So um, I think that we're, we're going to find that in many ways he's coming up with some, new twists on old solutions to harmonize the uh, biblical record with uh, scientific discovery, uh, supposed scientific discovery. And uh, he's not the first one to wrestle with that. I've wrestled with that. But uh, essentially, without going into detail, because I know we're going to go into detail in many of the specific things he stated, Overall, this is just not a new story. It's been going on for some time. Um, I would say well-meaning believers, at least with uh, good motivation at the beginning, um, trying to make sense of, of what scientists say, evolutionary scientists say, and still have uh, the Bible be accurate, almost as though they have to defend the Bible uh, to science. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, frankly, I'll come with my perspective. Um, <laughs> I would uh, uh, want to defend science from the Bible. And so a lot of times science is indefensible <laughs> from a biblical perspective. But anyway, uh, I, I don't know about 
him being heretical. There, there may be some things, I suppose, specifically that you might say, you know, that statement truly, truly is anti-biblical. Uh, but for the most part, I think the stuff that he says is abiblical, and he's just going down a slippery slope. He still seems to state the, the principles that I would say of, of crucial orthodoxy, that is the deity of Christ and, and salvation by the work of Christ alone. But how much can you really learn about a man in an hour interview? So Sure, sure. <laughs> and to be fair, you know, for the record, two things. Uh, this all comes from Sean McDowell's YouTube uh, video page. You know, mm-hmm. this was something he recorded. So I'm taking from that. And I will link that up for people so they can watch the full interview because obviously I don't have, you know, Sean McDowell uh, interceding in, in here. I've taken him out and I've cut out a lot of the interview just for time's yeah. sake. But all, and then also neither of us have read this book. So we're only basing our understanding and comments on what he's saying here in the interview. So and so what I figured we do is just actually let William Lane Craig himself, you know, from the interview kind of um share uh what he's thinking and then we can jump in and i can ask some questions about that and let you um you know give your response to what he's saying okay so what i've what i've started with here is um as mcdowell's questioning him uh he he is basically saying man you're going to get yourself in trouble with both the left and the right and i'm assuming he means of the theological spectrum not the political spectrum but i'm not sure right no i'm Uh, sure he's meaning theological (laughs) so um, and so he's asking him, you know, about the book. And, and so this is his response uh, to that. Young Earth creationists who believe that the world was created around 6,000 years ago in six literal 24-hour days, who believe that um, a few thousand years ago there was a worldwide flood that exterminated all terrestrial life on Earth, who believe that all of the world's languages stem from confusion at a Babylonian ziggurat called the Tower of Babel, are going to think that I'm compromising Hmm. on these biblical truths. So was he right? Um, Is he compromising? Uh, In a word, yes. Now, (laughs) he is attempting through his explanations, and I'm sure we'll get to it, this mytho-history that the ideas behind those events that he listed, you know, the global flood, the six-day creation, the Tower of Babel, he is saying that something like those events um, did happen, but not as the Bible records them, not as simply, not in such a short period of time, so to speak, not in an event, you know, that can just be recorded in the few chapters of the Bible, but I would say that he's compromising in the sense that he is altering what the clear statements of scripture seem to be saying, as he would put it, uh, he's compromising them with science. And so, yeah, I'd say he's compromising scripture with science. When you say compromising with science, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked, because I, I, I need to put that even more clearly. He's compromising with the claims of most of the evolutionary scientific community. So he's saying, you know what, you guys can be right, but you know the things that the Bible means when it says there's a flood and means when it says there was a creation, 
those things are true as well, which is the essence of compromise, right? One party moves a little to the middle and the other party moves a little to the middle, hopefully to find agreement and common ground. I've never found that to be the case with uh, really materialistic evolutionists, but in any event, so many of our theistic um, or, or uh, yeah, theistic evolutionists somehow think that that is going to work. When he's when I say he's compromising scripture, he's compromising with the scientific community at large. Right. So just for the record, I think it'd be also good to, uh, to note that, uh, you know, they bring up Josh Swamidas in the interview mm-hmm. and William Lane Craig goes you know, to great efforts to say, no, my, my views, you know, it's different than his. Um, now, you've already talked about Swami Das on your own podcast, which I'll also link in the show description. Um, can you give us just a little quick rundown of what that was about on your own program and what Swami Das is, was basically getting at? Um, yeah, well, Swami Das was essentially trying to do the same thing that uh, Dr. Craig uh, is doing, and that is say that, well, the biblical account of Adam isn't true in the sense that that's not what happened. You didn't have a a single Adam who uh, was created out of the dirt by God, uh, breathed into a spirit, the breath of life, which, by the way, I was really surprised. Craig never spoke about the spirit whatsoever. But anyway, (laughs) get off the track here. Um, Swami Das was basically, uh, again, saying that Adam came from the distant past that Adam of the Bible was not a a, uh, genetic Adam. He was a genealogical Adam. And just sort of trying to come up with some, I would say, rather clever explanations to discount the basic and simple literal meaning of the first few chapters of Genesis. And yet still, yeah, you have an Adam. So you can have evolution. You can have God uh, creating what are human beings distinct from hominids that are uh, uh, wandering around on the earth. And then from that creation, that special creation, then you get the lineage of human beings actually intermingling with these hominids who are not uh, hominids who are, are not fully human. So we discussed the difference between the idea of genetic Adam and a genealogical Adam. Again, I don't think that what Swami Das was doing was any different than what Craig is doing, and that is trying to somehow fit evolution into the Bible and say that that actually is what the Bible means. But of course, you know, Moses wouldn't put anything in there about evolution or natural selection. (laughs) He would just put a story in there to give everybody the, the sense that, oh yeah, God did it. Uh, so as it goes on, uh, McDowell gets into uh, asking Craig about the doctrine of original sin. And so this is how uh, Dr. Craig responds. For those who hold to the doctrine of original sin, that is to say that we are culpable for Adam's sin, or that Adam's sin corrupted human nature and we all bear that um, disease, The historical Adam is absolutely crucial because if he is merely a fictional character that never existed, obviously we cannot be culpable for 
the wrongdoing of a fictional person or be corrupted hmm. by his fall. Now, I myself don't hold to that classical doctrine of original sin. Hmm. I think that that is neither taught in Genesis 3 nor in Romans 5. I think what Paul teaches is that Adam was the floodgate through which sin entered into the human race, and then sin spread to all men because, as Paul says, all men sinned. Now, if that's right, it means Adam has to be a historical person, because again, if he were purely fictional, then sin could not have entered the human race through this individual. So I think that that requires a historical Adam. And I also think that the consequences of denying the historical Adam are very serious. They send reverberations through your theology that will affect, first of all, your doctrine of inspiration and then your doctrine of Christ. If it's true that Paul, for example, teaches that there was a historical Adam through whom sin came into the world, and yet that is false, then you have to say that the Bible teaches falsehoods. Hmm. Uh, and that is going to require you to revise your doctrine of inspiration in such a way that inspiration is consistent with the teaching of error. Moreover, hmm. since Jesus plausibly believed that Adam was a historical person, you're going to have to explain how Jesus can be divine and yet hold false beliefs. How do you respond to this? Because when I first heard this, I thought, well, what in the world is your, <laughs> how is your version of original sin different than what the church has understood original sin to be uh, for centuries? Yeah, I, well, he said so many things there, so many different things. Uh, I want to deal with a couple distinct issues. Sure. One, I, I'm surprised that, I'm sure he understands what he's saying. I'm surprised that he is saying that we are culpable for Adam's sin. I would say the exact opposite. Adam is culpable for our sin. That is because of what he did, we all are sinners. We aren't, we aren't not uh, culpable for what Adam did. Um, we are affected by it, but we're not guilty because of what Adam did. We're guilty because of what we do ourselves, but it's because of what Adam did that we all are born sinners. So that, first of all, I think is important to get straight. We aren't culpable for something somebody else did. We are um, the, the beneficiaries. That What's the opposite of beneficiaries? <laughs> we, we are the uh, sad uh, recipients Mm -hmm. of what Adam did. Um, so he's the one who is culpable. Um, the idea that there is no original sin, I, I mean, generally that's defined as the, the original sin that entered the human race uh, then spread to all men. And so he uses some of the terminology that we all use, but then he turns around and says something that I don't, that to me makes no sense. Adam sinned, as uh, the word of God tells, you know, he was referring to Romans 5. Listen to what Romans 5 says. Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. I don't know how much clearer Paul can put it, uh, that 
that sin entered through one man, that means that he sinned, as the Bible describes it, and with his fallen nature, all humans born by him and Eve afterward uh, sinned, ha have that sin nature. So it's, it's, he says he doesn't believe in original sin, and yet he says that you have to have this one person, a, hist a natural historical person, who allowed sin in or something. That, that to me, I just, I don't even know how to, how to grasp the, the concept that sin came in because one man sinned, but it, it's almost like an abstract. Okay, now we're, we're allowing sin, sin. Sin is something of the spirit. Sin, a sinful spirit is separated from God. Um, the spirit is passed on from Adam to all people. So I think he's just being very inconsistent in his use of uh, this idea of original sin and the, the uh, culpability. Um, I, I do agree with him that if you don't have an historical Adam, then uh, you've got statements in the Bible that seem to be uh, contradicting. That's about as good as I can address th those things that he said that to me are in, in part rather confusing. Well, yeah, what you mentioned there, uh, him pointing out that he has to have the historical Adam in order for scripture to basically make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really kind of the thing that led him seems on this whole wrestling through, you know, making the science and the scriptures fit. And that was kind of the whole point of this quest for the historical Adam. And, you know, really coming from his own imagination of just trying to see how it could fit into um, history through the uh, understanding of, well, really secular historians and scientists. Yeah, I, the, it's, it's also inconsistent because he insists upon this idea of an historical Adam, but this person lived half a million years ago. Well, Still, that historical Adam would have been the one that would have had to have disobeyed a commandment of God, allowing sin into the world, and he fell. Um, even with his mytho uh, history, as he calls it, the, the, the principle, the idea of that fall is, is undeniably what the Bible is teaching, whether it's what he says, you know, it didn't really mean it literally, or if it is exactly the way it's uh, uh, described in the Bible, but still the Bible is teaching that because Adam sinned, this historical person, death entered the world. And that's what Paul teaches. So I don't even, I still don't even understand why Craig has a problem with this concept that's been accepted for millennia <laughs> um, of, of original sin. But somehow or other to him, that's going to make his job more difficult, I guess, in getting Adam back uh, half a million years into human history. <laughs> right. Uh, let's continue with on with what he says here, which I think ties into what we've just been talking about. I would say that it would require you to revise your doctrine of inspiration and your Christology, but by no means would the denial of the historical Adam make you a heretic or separate you from salvation. In fact, in the opening chapter of the book, I explore a few of these worst case scenarios mm. 
as I call them. I say, suppose my proposal doesn't work. Suppose mm. we're stuck with one of these worst case scenarios where the Bible teaches that there was a historical Adam and yet there wasn't one. And I try to show that even given that worst case scenario, there are moves that we can make to preserve Orthodox um, Christian belief, even uh, given those reverberations. Now, we did already kind of briefly uh, speak about this at the beginning mm -hmm. of the interview, but how do you respond to Craig in this? You know, he's really kind of going out of his way to defend anyone who would, um, you know, basically throw out Adam as yeah. full, a fully historical figure. I I just, in, in a... Um, in many ways, just feel like he's just building a straw man there because he's he said that this would be the case if we prove that there wasn't an historical Adam, but that's what the Bible was teaching. Well, how in the world would we prove that there was no such thing as an historical Adam? I mean, he's taking the, the view that there wasn't one um, based on what the majority of, of uh, the evolutionary scientific uh, field says has to be, you know, man descending all the way back through apes, through mammals and so on and so forth. But tell me how anybody could ever actually say, oh, it's been proven. I mean, I would say the evolutionists probably already are saying that. So maybe that's the bone he's throwing them. Oh yeah. You, uh, you aren't a heretic. If, if even if Adam is proven not to be historical, I don't think he believes that. Well, in fact, I know he doesn't believe that, but he's saying even if somebody believes that Adam isn't historical, hey, listen, you can still uh, believe in your sin and that Jesus died for your sin and raised from the dead. At least I'm pretty sure he understands the essential um, importance of the resurrection. And uh, you're not a heretic. Um, you may be misguided, but you're not a heretic. So here is a case where we almost need his definition of heresy. I am assuming that what he's meaning by heresy is a heretic is not saved. That the, the dividing line between heresy and, and uh, error or grave error or whatever is whether it's a salvation issue. And frankly, I don't know if that, that I, I don't think that's my definition of, of heretic, but I do um, believe that you can have all kinds of messed up doctrine <laughs> and be saved. Uh, uh, I certainly am certain if I knew what I would change it, but I don't know what, but I am certain I have error in some of my doctrine. I have the security and confidence that I am saved because I do trust Christ as my savior. I understand he died for my sins and raised from the dead and I trust him for uh, my righteousness. This, this whole idea of what is heretical and what isn't heretical is not believing in a historical Adam heretical. And he says, no, well, that's purely dependent upon what your definition of heretical is. Sure. Which uh, we won't have the chance to ask him, I don't think, but uh, uh, yeah, I just find it interesting that he um, really goes out of his way to kind of comfort those who have basically thrown the whole thing out. Yeah. Uh, his next statement, I find this is one of those uh, classic. This is the, the point where my kind of jaw hit the floor. I'm like, oh, 
wait, what? So I'm really curious to see what you what your response is to this next statement. Obviously, all of us have a viewpoint hmm. from which we begin. But that doesn't mean that we cannot try to be objective in how we weigh the evidence okay. and arguments. And I have struggled mm. as best I can to weigh the evidence objectively to determine our biblical commitments. Now, I would be disingenuous, Sean, mm. if I were to say, I don't want the young earth creationist interpretation to come out true. Okay. Uh, to me, that is a nightmare. Uh, my, my greatest fear is that the young earth creationist might be right in his mm. hermeneutical claim mm. that Genesis does teach those things that I described earlier. And I say that would be a nightmare because if that's what the Bible teaches, it puts the Bible into massive, I think, irredeemable conflict with modern science, history, wow. and linguistics. And I don't want that to happen. We're his nightmare, apparently. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think the nightmare is if he were to become convinced. And I, and I think what he's this, this is what he's saying, Casey. If if it became in, in some way, shape or form. Absolutely certain that the intent, the meaning of uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are just what they appear to say. Uh, hermeneutically speaking, that that is what Moses meant. That's what God meant to convey happened. What he is saying, what he is, he, he didn't come right out and say it, but what, what is coming out in that is he believes what the scientists have come up with more than what he would believe the Bible is saying in those chapters, if they were to actually mean what they say as most people have understood them uh, for thousands of years. So he would say that's a nightmare. Well, it's a nightmare for him. And unfortunately, uh, I'm, I, I, and I would say this to his face if I had the opportunity, he needs to do a little more research. He needs to be willing to consider the kind of scientific evidences that are being proposed by quote unquote, young earth creationists, and maybe he wouldn't be so terrified to uh, then come to an understanding that, yeah, that's what the Bible means. And there is a boatload of science to back it up. And the evolutionary explanations for the age of the earth and the age of mankind and some of these uh, evolutionary proposals is becoming more and more problematic. I think he needs to study up a little bit more on some of the kind of research that's being done in genetics, in um, chemistry, and some of these areas, because what he is afraid of, he doesn't need to be afraid of it. The, the, the sciences are more and more backing up young earth creation interpretations of the Bible than they are the old earth stuff. Right, right. Yeah, in our you know last interview, we went over some of the compelling evidence that's been discovered and uh, sort of harmonized over the last couple of decades. And I mean, even his understanding of genetics, I, I don't, I'm not sure what he's been studying, who, who he's talking with, maybe Swami does, I don't know. But this idea that modern man is a half a million years old, that's from the 80s. Right. I mean, that is literally 30 years, um, 30 years in the past. 
Um, mitochondrial genetic research um, has been narrowing that down, narrowing that down to the point where modern man, even amongst evolutionary uh, evolutionists, is on the order of 100,000 years old. So that's you know much older than I would uh, think that the Bible can can uh, would propose. But why he's taken this back to 500 or 750,000 years, I think he's listening to just rank evolutionists, uh, human evolutionists, and accepting their datings, um, who, who, you know, obviously are always trying to just push things further and further back. But uh, I, I, uh, I wish he would do a little more um, research into the kinds of discoveries that are being made. Maybe he wouldn't be so terrified to uh, come to an idea, come to an understanding that, oh, wait, what the Bible says here is, that, is actually what it means. Yeah, you know, and, and not having read his book, I don't know if he gets into any of that. I, I kind of find it unlikely, but, you know, I'm like, does he have any understanding of the dinosaur fossils being found with the proteins and tissues? Does he understand the mitochondrial Eve evidence? Does he understand? Well, he, doesn't, the, he doesn't seem to question the, the dating at all. I mean, now, again, we're only talking about an hour uh, but I mean, everything that he bases his arguments on as far as the validity of, of, as he puts it, the deliverances of science demonstrates an assumption uh, and an acceptance of the, the dating techniques that are used to come up with the millions and even billions of years. Right. So he gets into um, talking about Genesis 1 through 11 as mytho history. Mm -hmm. So uh, and then he gives a definition of it. So I'm going to just um, let you hear what he had to say on that. The call of Abraham in chapter 12 on, you have straightforward historical narrative. But Genesis okay. 1 to 11 is acknowledged by every New Testament commentator that to be apart from the rest of Genesis, to be a special sort of narrative and a peculiar genre of literature, a myth. Now he he did clarify in the interview he meant Old Testament yeah, scholars, yeah, but I, I when even when I heard it, I said there's no way every Old Testament scholar would agree with what he's saying. I mean I have a study Bible when I open it up it says these are six literal days in the notes. So clearly there's some scholars out there who don't agree with this opinion. Uh, yeah, plenty of of, of conservative <laughs> scholars, but I think now this again uh, indicates you know the the group of scholars. Um, that he is um, paying attention to. So he, I, I'm sure he is aware. I, I can't really, I think if you were to corner him, if McDowell had cornered him, he would say, well, I do know some, but then under his breath, he would say, but they're of no count. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. they're, they're, uh, you know, they're ignorant or, or something. They don't, they're, they're not up to date or they don't know their stuff. Uh, by the way, the JEPD theory that just uh, 20 years ago was, was uh, staunchly ensconced in uh, all the liberal universities is virtually on the ropes. So when he, what the, the point that he's making is that Genesis chapter one through 11, this are um, deals with universal origins as opposed to from chapter 12, beginning with Abram on, which deals with the, uh, uh, the people of God's origin, Abram. You know, God's dealing with his people. The thing is, the idea that 
those first 11 chapters are just mytho history, sort of, sort of ethereal um, generalizations, universal and is a, is a word that, that gets used a lot. The idea being it, it's not specific. Let me give you some detail about Genesis 1 through 11. And, and then you, you decide if this is just sort of a whole, a, a bunch of generalized sort of uh, universal ideas being proposed versus factual narrative about things, people, places, and history that actually happened as reported. In Genesis chapter 1 through 11, there are 64 geographical terms, 88 personal names, 48 generic names, and 21 identifiable cultural items. Now, given his explanation of mytho history, the cultural items, I suppose, would fit because, you know, they're trying to take this, this universal, this long span of time and, and condense it into a story that fits their culture. But really, 64 different specific places, 88 people's names, 48 other generic names, the detail in Genesis 1 through 11 is hardly being presented as a mytho kind of just vague generalized story or, or even a parable. It is being presented as factual people, places, dates, and things. So I, let, I, me uh, just, let me just, let me just quick, can I just, sorry, could, could I just quickly play his um, definition? Cause I think it ties into what you're saying. Sure. Uh, and that way we can kind of put the, the two yeah, together. The definition yeah. of mytho history, let's hear what he has to say. It is. Good, good idea. A myth in this sense is a traditional sacred narrative that attempts to ground realities contemporaneous with the author, uh, including in a society's institutions and values and natural phenomena in events of the deep primordial past. And I think you would agree that that description fits Genesis 1 to 11 to a T. Does it fit it to a T? Um, yeah, I would say no. I, I would say actually the narrative of Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is uh, no different. It's historical narrative. It's no different from the narrative that uh, continues from Genesis chapter 12 on, which again gives geographical, geographical terms, personal names, uh, identifiable cultural items. And uh, the only thing that is different is that because of evolutionary, of an evolutionary mindset, it also in the first 11 chapters of the Bible is giving explanations for how things came into being that um, disagree with that, that contradict what evolutionary scientists propose, because they find it necessary in their imagination and I use that word specifically in their imagination that uh, things could only happen if you have enough time to, to let it happen. It, it's, almost, it's almost juvenile. The idea that, well, if you, if you have enough time, anything can happen. Well, how scientific is that? Um, that? That may work in probability. But if, if you want to get into probabilities, we start dealing with probabilities that are beyond um, possibility. In other words, the numbers that you start getting into when they start to do, start trying to do probability of, of various evolutionary scenarios, 
the numbers are bigger than, for example, the number of hydrogen atoms in the universe and things like this. So I don't think that Genesis 1 through 11 is not the same kind of historical narrative as the rest of uh, the Old Testament. Why do we see these doctored theologians con uh, consistently and constantly trying to make these separations between those first 11 chapters and the rest of Genesis? Is, is it because of the merely because of the uh, influence of contemporary science, or is there something else going on? Yeah, well, I, th I would say that's the main thing. I mean, there obviously is a major distinction between the subject of Genesis 1 through 11 and then beginning with chapter 12 on. I mean, you think about it. Genesis 1 begins with the creation of the entire universe, this sweeping description of uh, a 1,500 to 2,000 years through the flood and the, the distribution of man or across the entire planet. And then boom, God's focus narrows down all the way to one man uh, in an instant. Uh, now, there are segues, I guess we might say, or transitional, it's, there are actually transitional forms. They're the beginnings and the endings of the genealogies. They're called Toledoths. But uh, just because the, the focus goes from a focus of the entire human race, all of mankind, to literally one man, and then it expands out again, uh, doesn't mean that the first 11 chapters don't represent history. <laughs> right. He does actually get into the genealogies uh, right yeah, after this. he talks about them. Uh -huh. Which uh, is the next clip. They also have a historical interest, as is evident by these narratives being ordered by genealogies. Genealogies that terminate in people who are indisputably intended to be historical, like Abraham and his children. And these genealogies are like the backbone of these primordial narratives. They turn these prehistoric narratives into a prehistoric chronology or a primeval history. And so that's why the great Assyriologist Torquil de Jacobson characterized this as a unique genre of literature that he dubbed mytho-history. And Bill okay. Arnold, whom I heard, was simply following Torquil de Jacobson in this analysis uh, and I think that it is an extremely plausible analysis of the genre hmm. of Genesis 1 to 11. So on the one hand, he's saying the early chapters are a form of myth or fable. But then on the other hand, it also contains historical elements due to the presence of the genealogies. I mean, really, it seems to me he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too where he would come up with, okay, which name in this genealogy is an historical person that we can then follow through the rest of the Bible? Is it, is it Abraham? Or is it his father, Terah? Or is it um, the, the father of Terah, Nahor? Or the father of Nahor, Sarah? I mean, at what point is he going to say, oh, now these names um, represent just sort of mytho-historical, what, groups of groups of people or something? Um, you, you get to Peleg, and uh, later on, when 
uh, or earlier on in Genesis, when you read about Peleg, it says in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. And um, my understanding of that is Peleg lived in the days of the Tower of Babel. I don't think it's talking about the, the actual continent being divided. That would be uh, well after the flood. And how could anyone survive if the continent broke up? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the earthquakes would, would just destroy everything. But the idea of the earth being divided, the earth word, Hebrew word, Eretz, describes people all the time. Peleg lived during the time of the Tower of Babel, according to that genealogy. Then Craig is saying, well, that Tower of Babel wasn't an historical event. So would he say that Peleg isn't really an historical person that lived at the time of the Tower of Babel? I don't know how he would define where the mytho ends and the, the actual literary, liter, literal history begins. I mean, I read in Luke, and it says, here, here's, here's the father to son list. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalal, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. I don't see any distinctions there other than, than father to son, father to son, or at least close relative, you know, it could be a grandson or something, but we're not talking about epochs of time or, or uh, populations or nations. Um, after Noah, Shem, Arpachshad, Canaan, Shela, Eber, Peleg. Now we've gotten up to the Tower of Babel. I think that's what we should understand it. From Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahor, Terra, Abram. I mean, where do you where do you break that off? The genealogies form very very important divisions. Form um, hallmarks not only from <clears throat> excuse me Genesis chapter twelve on, or in the first chapter of Matthew or the third chapter of Luke. They are contained within Genesis chapter 1 through 11 as well. I hope you enjoyed the first part of this two-part interview with Dr. Ben Scripture of Scripture on Creation Ministries. Please look in the show description for a link to the original Sean McDowell interview with Dr. William Lane Craig, along with some links to Dr. Ben's own podcast regarding Joshua Swamidas and his views on Genesis. And just a reminder as well that part two of this interview will drop next Friday, and then we will be coming up on the season finale of season one of This Late Hour, where I will bring together many of the main points made throughout this first season and just sort of make a closing argument of why we can trust that not only are we in the last days, but that we are getting very late in the hour. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review along with any favorable comments you may have. Consider supporting the show today by clicking on the ACAST supporter link or by becoming an official patron of the show. Check out our Facebook page to leave comments or questions or on Twitter at Casey Knowlton. You can also email me at thislatehourpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening in today. Stay on the alert, dear Christian. Until next time, God bless. You have been listening to this late hour. Your contribution helps pay our fees, improve our equipment, and build better content. It is my hope that your continued support of our show may bring future interviews and exclusives. Our goal is to always be improving our show so that the church may be strengthened in our mission to bring salt and light to this present darkness. May God richly bless you.